Now, Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 32. This is the inerrant, sufficient, and authoritative word of the living God. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as had, to each as any had need. Then Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and, car and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you, you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Have you ever had the opportunity to obtain or purchase Something that is just as good as a name brand product. You know what I mean. These things you go into the stores and they're just as good, only they're not. We purchased several years ago, it seems like a small thing, but there was a very good deal on a box of about ten permanent markers. They weren't Sharpies, but they looked like it. They were gray on the bottom and black on the top, and they said permanent marker on them, and they were a great price. And I dutifully opened them up one day and had to write on something and wrote and picked it up and put it down, and guess what was all over my hand? Black. And I said to myself, 
Sharpies don't do that. I'm also not very fond of purchasing coffee that's just as good as Starbucks. It's not. And when you drink as much coffee as I do, you can tell the difference. But I think perhaps the most, the single most different, not the original thing, that I have ever experienced, and maybe, kids, you've experienced this as well, is if you have ever eaten a not-quite Oreo cookie. You can eat other non-name brand cookies, but compared to an Oreo, all of the other non-name brands taste like cardboard with maybe a white piece of paper put between them. You can tell the difference immediately. And we tell the difference because we realize it doesn't stand up to measure, right? That's true of professing Christians as well. You see, there are many, especially in our day, who profess to know the Lord Jesus Christ, who profess to love the Lord God, who profess to want to serve, but they're not quite like the real thing. And it may take a long time, it may not be as quick of a discovery as when you eat a fake Oreo, but after a while we see the difference between a fake profession and a real one. We see that here this morning in a startling case. A case really, Luke sets us up between a difference between two men. Between someone who has a real profession and someone who does not. And we see the context of this in the early life of the church. And so what I would like us to see this morning are three great things. First, let's see the great grace that is in the church, that comes from the Lord God. The great grace that is found in the church. And then secondly, we will see, as Luke describes to us, this great contrast in the church. A contrast between the encourager and the hypocrite. And then finally, we will see a great warning from God. A warning to His people who are found in the church. Let's look first then at the great grace that God brings to his church. We see this here in verses 32 and 33. That God showers his grace upon this church. Now let's think for a minute here about the context of what is going on. There are now approximately 20,000 members and families in the church of Jesus Christ. The church has grown from about 120 into about 20,000. We know that because we know for a fact there are at least 5,000 men. And 5,000 men come with at least a few women. Hopefully four or 5,000. And between them, they come with at least a few children. You start doing the math. If each family has two or three or four, some perhaps would have six or eight children you can immediately see how this church has exploded in growth. It's so large that we see here in verse 32, they are no longer a group or a band. They are a multitude. That's what the Greek word is for full number in verse 32. It really says, now the multitude of those who believed. It is a full number. And this is barely four months from the resurrection. Now, don't lose track of this. We are almost in real time. 
When we started our sermon series in Acts 1, from that point until now, we are almost in real time in Acts 4. It has not been very long. Do not be confused and think that there have been years that have gone by. No, this is a very quick period of growth. And yet at the same time through this quick period, this multitude has come together in a very dear way. Because you see, Luke tells us in verse 32 that the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And so the first thing we see as a manifestation of the grace of the living God is that there is unity in the church. Unity among 20,000 new converts from every race found in the Middle East. And this unity is two sorts. It is a unity both of love or emotion and also of purpose or goal because they are of one heart and they are also of one soul. They are of one heart. They love the same things. It's similar to what we saw in Philippians when Paul encouraged the Philippian church. They love the same things. They love to be around one another. They love hot dogs. They love to drink together. They love to read the same books. But more than that, they love being around and encouraging one another. They love telling each other of their prayers and hopes and dreams. They're of one heart, but they're also of one soul. This doesn't mean that they all only had one eternal soul, but it may as well be the case. You see, their souls are so knit together because they are going and marching in the same direction. We might recall the old hymn, We're Marching to Zion. Or think of the old book, Pilgrim's Progress, Marching to the Celestial City. This large church now is gathered together and they are unified. Now, this shouldn't surprise us, because after all, this is exactly what our Lord Jesus Christ prayed would happen, isn't it? Do you remember in John 17, when our Lord said this? He said, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you loved me. You see, Jesus prayed that they would be one and God is bringing it about by His Word and Spirit. They have the same love, they have the same goals, but they also think the same things. Now, does that mean that they can finish each other's sentences? I know some of you who have been married for a while can do that. One spouse begins a sentence and the second can finish it because... You know what you're saying. You think the same things. I don't think that's quite the case here, but we do see that there is a unity of thought. There is a unity of theology. Don't let anyone ever tell you that unity around what the Bible teaches is unimportant to a church. Because it's not. It is important. And you see, when we think the same things, we grow to love one another more and we go along that journey in the same path. But being unified does not mean that they are uniform. Many of you know this experience from your families. You may be unified in what you're going to do, but you shake your head and you say, you know, the children are so different, aren't they? You see, we don't want uniformity or 
conformity in the church. We don't want everyone to look the same, act the same, and speak the same. No, rather we want the opposite. We want a diversity of gifts. We want a diversity of abilities so that the church may do all of the tasks that is before it. Humanly speaking, we might think of, well, on this July 4th, when we think of apple pie and flags, we might also think of baseball. And you see, the church is a bit like a baseball team in this respect. You don't only want starting pitchers. You don't only want relievers. You don't only want infielders. A baseball team that is filled only with home run hitters is no good. Or only with those who can steal bases is no good. You need a variety of gifts to win. And this is like what the church is like. We need those who can teach. Those who can serve. Those who can encourage. Those who are willing to teach adults. Those who are willing to teach children. Those who have musical gifts. You see, the church is a place where the diversity of our gifts leads to a greater unity as everyone finds their place. So great grace is found in the church in its unity. But God has graced this church not only with unity, He's also graced it with boldness. Do you see here? The apostles, they were testifying to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were testifying to the greatness of Jesus. Now, how do they get this boldness? Well, do you remember their prayer? Look up just a few verses to verse 29. In verse 29, they prayed that the Lord would grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And now here in verse 33, we see that God has granted great power to the disciples to testify. This word for power we have seen before. Do you not just remember the prayer? Do you remember the promise that Jesus gave to them? Turn with me back to Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Jesus promised the disciples that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon them. And they would be His witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And this is the same word. You remember it's that Greek word that looks like dynamite. It is power that God has promised and that they have prayed for and that now they are seeing. You see, that is how grace works. We rely on the promise of God and we claim it in prayer and then God provides it by His grace. And it is a great power. It is a great power that is found in testifying to, in preaching and teaching Jesus. And you see, that power is available not just in Jerusalem. Not just in the first century. That kind of power is available in Katy, Texas in 2010. It's the power that is found by testifying to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only unity, but boldness and great power. The third thing we see in the grace of the living God to this church is love that is manifested within the church. They not only have boldness, they not only have unity, they also have love. Because you see, their fellowship is not just casual. I've said this to you before. I enjoy meals when we get together like we will this evening. But there is a sense in which 
It is almost a crime that we can think of that as being the sum of fellowship. Fellowship is not coffee in the narthex, beloved. Fellowship is not sitting around a table. Those things are ways to facilitate. They are means to fellowship. Fellowship is sharing prayer requests. Fellowship is helping one another. Fellowship is encouraging one another. Fellowship is visiting one another. You see, these things that we call fellowship in the church are really only opportunities for fellowship to happen. Because you see, in this church, they didn't just sit and talk together. They didn't just eat together. They shared of their very selves. They shared of their wealth, of their gifts, of their abilities. Even as you all do here at Christ Church. And so I encourage you not to think of fellowship as merely time spent together, but rather as an opportunity to show our love one to another, our concern for one another. And you see, Luke is very clear in the way he says it. He talks about that there was not a needy person among them, but as many as who were owners of lands, they sold their lands and they brought the proceeds and they laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed. And each one of these verbs is used in the way we might say they did this over a period of time. It's not that they had a sell-your-house day to raise money for the budget. It's something came up. A brother had a medical need. A sister needed food. And they responded immediately, over and over again. Because you see, times were tough. If you think times are tough here in our economy, Jerusalem was a very poor city. We'll see later that after the wealth of all of the church in Jerusalem has been used up, that Paul takes up collections at Corinth and various Greek cities. You see, there are needs. See, the thing is, this church thought not just in individual terms, but in corporate terms. And especially on July 4th as Americans, we need to be reminded that we are not a collection of individuals with individual rights. We are a corporate people of God who are gathered together to help one another and worship the living God who has gathered us together not only to give us Himself as our Father, but to give us brothers and sisters And you see, they thought so much in corporate terms. Look at what they said. No one said, no one said that each thing was his own. But rather, they shared with each other. Now, this is very interesting because you see where it says, no one said that things that belonged to him was his own in verse 32. The same word is used for his own as was used earlier in chapter 4, when it was said that Peter and John returned to their own. Do you remember that? They returned to their own group. They returned to their own family. You see, the emphasis was not on my own, but on our own, as we gather together. Now, I need to say a word here, because this text has been the source of a flight of fancy by many. It has been used as a proof text, above all things, for communism, that most godless, atheistic of philosophies. And someone looks at this and says, you see, no one was allowed to own property. 
The apostles made them sell it. And they had to give to everyone. You know that saying. From each, according to his ability, to each, according to his need. And sadly, there are those who go to Christian booksellers' conferences and recite that and say, where do you find that? And people say, in the Bible. Rather than in Mark's. Because you see here, it was not that what they owned was taken from them. It was rather that they saw that there were needs. It was not a principle of equality. It was a principle of need. And they gave to those who were in need. Long, long ago, writing just one century after Acts was written, Clement of Alexandria said this wise saying, If the church did not have property, then how could it give? And that's the truth. You see, Peter even tells Ananias later, wasn't that property yours? Couldn't you have kept it? And when you sold it, couldn't you have kept the money? You see, in order to read communism into this text, you must do something incredibly dangerous, more dangerous than communism itself. You must pick and choose out of your Bible. You must wrest a meaning from the Bible. You must ignore certain verses before and after in context. And so we must not do this. But at the same time, we must realize that this giving showed the changed life of the church. And this kind of giving, if we are honest with ourselves, is not found in the 21st century American church. It is not. I'm not speaking specifically of you or of Christ church, but when was the last time you heard a story of someone selling a house so a brother could have a car? When was the last time you heard of someone exchanging in vacation tickets so someone else could have food? Now, I do know it occurs, so do not hear me beating you up. But we must understand that this is not to be the exception. This is not to be something that exceptional churches do. It is to be a mark of being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. We must sacrifice. We must give. Because you see, if our lives are not changed, then there is no gospel. You see, the grace of God is found in changed lives. It's found in the evidence and the fruit of a life. It is not just found in people using the words gospel or using the words grace. One of the things that I saw to my chagrin at General Assembly is now gospel has become an adjective. There is gospel fellowship. There is gospel worship. There is gospel this and gospel that. And I don't want to hear about it. I want to see it. I want to see how God has changed my life, how God has changed your life. That's what's happening here in Acts. Well, this is the great grace of the Lord Jesus Christ found in the church. And then we see a great contrast in the church. And Luke does this intentionally. I need you to do something for me to help all of us. I need you to find that big number five in your Bible that comes right before the word but. And I need you to put your thumb over it. Because we see chapter 4 and we see chapter 5 and we don't see that Luke is writing this together. He wants to hold up for us two pictures. Barnabas and Ananias, both professing to know the Lord Jesus Christ, both found amongst the church, perhaps even both persecuted. But oh, the difference that grace makes. 
First, we see Barnabas, the encourager, in verse 36 of chapter 4. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, he sold the field that belonged to him and brought money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, who is this Barnabas? Who is this Joseph? Well, he is either a Hellenistic or a Diaspora Jew. That is, someone who was Jewish who was driven out of the Holy Land and lived in Cyprus. And now he is back in Jerusalem. He is also a man of great courage. We will see Barnabas in chapter 8. When all flee Jerusalem in fear, Barnabas stays. He's also a man of mission. He is the one who is sent to Antioch to help. You see, we might say, more accurately, Paul goes along with Barnabas, rather than Barnabas goes along with Paul. Barnabas is the one who was sent to Antioch to help. Barnabas is the one who is on a mission. And he is called son of encouragement, this Barnabas. You see, in the old church, they had nicknames too. I'm Italian, so I'm used to that. You can't just be Tony. You've got to be Big Tony, or Little Tony, or Regular Tony. You can't be just Bob. You you have to have a nickname so someone can know who you are. And that's what Barnabas is. And this is a Hebrewism. You see, when someone is son of something, it denotes the type of character they have. It's why in Mark... John and his brother are called the sons of thunder. Right after they say to Jesus, could could you please call down fire from heaven on those people over there? They're the sons of thunder. And so you can see Barnabas is marked by encouragement. And this shouldn't surprise us because what's the first thing he does when we meet him? He gives of himself for others to encourage them. You're not sure you can pay that medical bill? Don't worry about it. I have a home. It'll be taken care of. What? The crops have failed? Don't worry about it. Praise God. He's given to me a home. We can take care of it together by the Lord's grace. You see, Barnabas is an encourager. And this specific example, this is like a preacher's illustration. You see, Luke wants us to see what someone does because all sorts of people are doing this. Barnabas is doing exactly what the church is doing, and the way he speaks of it, it's actually very very understated. We don't know how big his home was, or how many people he helped. We just know that God, that God laid it upon Barnabas' heart to encourage those who are in the church. Have you asked yourself how you can be an encourager? You know, you can be an encourager even if you're five or six. You don't need to wait till you graduate college. How can you encourage others? Maybe it's by teaching. Maybe it's by praying. Maybe it's by giving. Maybe it's by picking someone's spirits up. Maybe it's by seeing someone new and telling them where the playground is. You see, we are called to be encouragers to one another. And Barnabas does this because, you see, the church needs encouragers. Because the church isn't just filled with Barnabases. It also has Ananiases. And you see, that's the second person we see in the contrast. We see the hypocrite. 
You see how Luke does this? You've got your finger over that number five, so you're not worried about the chapter break. We see, but a man named Ananias with his wife sold a piece of property. And they kept back a portion of the proceeds. Now, I don't want you to see here that the problem is merely that Barnabas gave all and Ananias gave some. That's not the problem. Peter even says you could have done what you wanted to with it. You didn't have to give us all. You see, the problem is Ananias sat down at the kitchen table with his wife and said, you know, the people really like Barnabas. They're calling him the son of encouragement. He gets invited to everybody's house. People say good things about him. They're really encouraged by him. You know, I think, I think we should get that kind of treatment. Why don't we do like what Barnabas does and then people will think we're great encouragers and people will pray for us and they'll be happy for us. And maybe it was Sapphira who said it or maybe Ananias after a little reflection said, but you know, that piece of property is worth an awful lot of money. And they struck on an idea. Well, we could sell the whole property and we could just give them part. But if we tell them we sold all the property, then everyone will still think we're encouragers and they'll love us. And they sat down and they said, that's the ticket. Let's do it. And they sold the property. <coughs> and they went and said to Peter, and you can almost imagine this kind of hypocrite, this kind of person who's concerned about show, walking up to Peter and making a big show. Sold that big piece of property down on Main Street, Peter. Got a big bag of money for you, Peter. Help out a lot of people. You know, it was hard to part with that property on Main Street. That was my grandfather's. But, you know, whatever we can do for the church. You know people like that, don't you? All talk. Maybe, before the grace of God met you, maybe you were a person like that. Maybe... You're even like that now. Because you haven't been met by the one who changes that kind of heart. You haven't been met by the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're so wrapped up in the things of this world that you can't manage to let them go. Jesus says, let them go for me. You don't need things. You need Jesus. Now, I'm not telling you you need to go out and sell everything you own. Don't sell the car and you can't drive back to evening church. But I am telling you, you must give all for Jesus. You must not hold anything back. You must not keep a piece of your heart or your family or your life or your finances and say, God, stay out of here. It is only by giving everything that you have that the Lord Jesus Christ can make you truly His. And all of the riches that are found in Christ Jesus are yours. You see, the sin here was in the keeping back after the promise. Nobody was making Ananias give, but he promised that he would and he broke his promise. His desire was to have the show without the reality. It was hypocrisy. It was exactly what the Pharisees were all about. And so you can imagine, Peter and John have just been out being threatened by the Pharisees for preaching the gospel, and they turn around and back in the church, they see Pharisee and Phariseeette. How do you think 
Peter's going to respond. But before you think that, let me ask you this question, a question that will make you uncomfortable. How are you the hypocrite? In your hearts, you know the area of your life in which you want to seem a little bit better than you are. I know where they are in my life. I'm not asking for hands. I won't ask Gladys to play just as I am while we confess. But I want you to seriously think about that question. Because God sees all. I don't see much. Especially when it's a lot of pollen in the air. My eyes go bad with my contacts. But God sees everything. You see, you have also made a promise. You have also made a solemn vow. Every single one of you that are a member of Christ's church, you have promised to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability. Are you keeping that promise? Do you love the church? Do you love to worship with each other? Do you support the work? And that doesn't just mean what you put in the offering plate. Are you volunteering for VBS? Are you helping with snacks? Are you teaching Sunday school? You see, we are called to support the church. We dealt with this issue at General Assembly. You see, the sad fact of the American church is that the Presbyterian Church in America, the largest, most conservative, reformed denomination in the world, cannot get more than half of its churches to support the national work of the church. They're deadbeats. And so we had to pass a resolution saying, if you don't give for the costs of the General Assembly, you can't vote at the General Assembly. Now our church, before I ever came, fully supported and funded all of our church's work, broadly speaking, our missionary work, our church planting work, our college work. The call is to each and every one of us individually as well. Because you see, this story is much like another story. We expect this kind of story to be Old Testament, right? Harsh God. Somebody doesn't give, bang, you're dead. That's not how the New Testament works, is it? We're more gracious. But you see, Luke puts this story right in the New Testament, right at the beginning of the church, so we would see what was going on. It's said that Ananias kept back a portion of the money. That Greek word is only used in two other places in the Bible. One is in Titus, where Titus tells the church... someone an officer who does this. The other place is found at the beginning of the Old Testament church. You see, Ananias has a twin. He's not Barnabas. His name is Achan. That word is also used of Achan. You remember the story in Joshua chapter 7. They conquer Jericho and they're supposed to devote everything to God. And then they go to this next town, Ai, this little dinky town. It's so small of a town, they don't even bother to send the whole army. And they send the army and they receive the worst defeat they have ever had. And Joshua says, like a good leader in touch with God, he says, whoa, wait a minute. (laughs) We should have won that battle. Something's going on here spiritual. 
And they find out that Achan had seen and lusted after and coveted and took things from Jericho. And he had kept them back from being devoted. You see, this is the way God operates. Both in the Old Testament and in the New. Last point on this. I want you to notice ladies, Sapphira. She knew ahead of time what Ananias was doing and she colluded. She knew together with him. Don't let anyone ever tell you that to be submissive, you must support your husband in sin. A submissive wife tells her husband, you cannot do this. And if you do, I'm going to tell the elders. This is serious damage to your soul, beloved. And so as wives, we're called to be submissive, but also to encourage our husbands to do the right thing. And even if need be, to hold them accountable. Lastly and briefly, we've looked at the great grace of God in this church. We've seen the great difference between Barnabas and Ananias. And this leads us to a great warning that comes from God. God has a warning for us today. His first warning is we must beware of the adversary. We must beware of the adversary. Because you see, it is very easy to look at this picture and to see nothing more than two people's greed. But that's not what's going on here. Do you see what's going on here? Peter Peter knows it. Peter sees it in verse 3 of chapter 5. He says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? The language that Luke uses here is very similar to the language in Luke 22 when he describes Judas being filled with the spirit of Satan. The spirit of the enemy. You see, Satan is at work here. He wants to harm the mission of the church. He is encouraging Ananias and Sapphira to contrive with one another. He's encouraging them. You see, he wants them to sin. He wants them to hurt what is going on here. Satan has filled his heart to lie and to keep back the proceeds from the land. And you see, Satan knows a lot's at stake here. Peter says, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? And then he says, so thankfully for me and for you, why have you lied to God? If you've lied to the Holy Spirit, you've lied to God. They're one and the same. This is perhaps the greatest proof text that the Holy Spirit is God. You see, Satan sees what is going on here. And he understands the seriousness of what we profess before God. You know that little Latin phrase that R.C. Sproul uses, Coram Deo, before the face of God. Everything you do is before the face of God. And Satan cannot stand it when you love one another. He hates that with a passion. And that's what's happening here. They're growing and loving one another. Now, why do I go on about this? It's because, beloved... Christ's church is growing. It's because, beloved, you love one another. Satan hates that. And he will do whatever he can to destroy the love and the unity and the growth of this church and its mission to bring the gospel to Houston. We must beware of our enemy. 
But we must also know who God is. This text reminds us that God is holy. He is not just the Spirit. He is the Holy Spirit. And maybe when you first read this story, it shocked you. You thought, you know, all the guy did was not put a little money in the till. Why is God striking him dead? You see, if this story shocks you, I must encourage you to learn more about who God is and how holy He is and how hateful sin is to Him and how God sees everything under the sun. Lastly, there is a warning here from God that we are to fear God. We must remember that this is not an Old Testament story. You see, they had tested God. Look at verse 9. Why had you agreed together to test the Spirit of God? Deuteronomy 6 tells us, Do not put the Lord to the test. Our Lord Himself Rebuke the devil in Matthew 4 saying, you shall not put the Lord to the test. That's what they had done. We are to fear God. We are not to, to poke at Him and to see what we can get away with. No. You see, this is designed to teach us. And if we think about it, if God used this more than by way of an example, if this were ordinary practices, there would be three offices in the church today. Elder, Deacon and pallbearer. Because we would need them. If we would be struck dead instantly for this kind of hypocrisy, we would need an office of pallbearer in the church. But you see, God wants to remind us that He is not a cuddly teddy bear. He is love, but He is not a precious moments doll. He is the living God, King of the universe, to be feared with proper gospel fear. You see, this is a story to show us that God is supreme. And if you are saying to yourself, well, you know, I don't know if a God that I believe in would do something like this. I don't know if the God that I know would do this. Then I must plead with you, you need to know the God of the Bible. Because the God of the Bible does this. The God of the Bible grabs His people and never lets them go and brings them to Himself and He makes them more like Jesus. Is that the God you know? Is that the God you love? Because He is not tame. To paraphrase. But in Jesus Christ, He is safe. He is the God of His people. Let's pray.